Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today you're going to hear an interview that Kellen and I had with someone who has lived an absolutely fascinating life and who we thought would be extremely relevant to the conversation here. Yeah, we were really excited to have this conversation because not only is Chase a longtime listener of the podcast, but he also has a really unique mixture of experience and expertise relevant to multiple subtopics of collapse. Chase has multiple degrees in permaculture and he is actively building a sustainable and resilient local community. He's asked that we omit his last name for now, because at the time of this episode being published, he's using his background as a combat medic to provide meaningful help on the front lines in Ukraine. Here's the interview. All right, Chase, we are so excited to have this conversation with you. I think you'll bring a very interesting perspective that we're excited to learn some things from you and have a discussion relevant to collapse. Uh, we're really excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys very much. It's uh, it's great to finally meet both of you. So maybe to start, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit, your history and background, and and why you thought it would be uh, cool to join us for this interview. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Chase. Uh, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I live on the West Coast now. Uh, I've done a lot of traveling, a lot of uh, organic farming a lot of permaculture, a lot of horticulture, a lot of school, uh, a lot about that stuff. And uh, when I was younger, my dad always kind of very gently warned me that things wouldn't always be so easy that I should know how to farm my own food. And 
and stuff like that. And a little bit over time, I started to notice things uh, that were really interesting uh, about self-reliance, self-sufficiency, as best as one can do. And so I've really uh, put a focus into that. And right at about that time, things started getting very interesting out in the public. And uh, we started a, a community recently that we are working and building on now. That's spectacular. I'm curious, you mentioned the the permaculture and the horticulture. How long have you been working in in that field? 12 years now. Yeah, I have two degrees uh, in horticulture from Wisconsin, one in uh, greenhouse and flora and landscape and design. And that was kind of a a very college way of looking at horticulture, which is is part of it, right? Um, numbers and, and math and design and things like that. But uh, I did a lot of permaculture study in Guatemala and uh, Costa Rica, Mexico, uh, Washington, you know, all over the United States as well. You mentioned that your dad kind of gently nudged you and, and <laughs> taught you that things wouldn't always be so easy. What was his rationale and uh, what really got you interested in permaculture and some of these other things? Uh, well, my dad, he's a very smart man. Uh, he was a child psychologist and a, a psychotherapist, and he's just always had this this inkling that uh, the way that things were set up, they weren't going to, it wasn't going to continue on. It's only kind of a golden age of sorts, right? And things were going to have to change, but that he didn't have a ton of faith that people would change accordingly with it without a bit of a, a struggle. And so he just, I don't think he wanted to scare me or anything, but he just, you know, this is going to be on you was one of his, his things. If you want to take care of yourself and others, you're going to have to do it. And so that's always been in, I've had some weird jobs, I'm sure we'll get into, but that's always been in the back of my mind. And I've, no matter what I've done and where I've gone, I've tried to incorporate that in volunteering on uh, farms and, and stuff like that. Awesome. So you, you mentioned that you're building a community. Could you tell us a little more about mm -hmm. that? Yeah. So this is, uh, this is my first time actually designing one. I've helped manage, um, you know, you kind of do all the little parts, but this is the first time putting it together. Uh, I was in Guatemala and I met a beautiful woman who I'm with now, and we decided to start our own. So we, uh, it took a long time to find land in the right spot, but um, we are, we're calling it a, uh, uh, not so much a, a <laughs> I'm forgetting the words, what do we call it, huh? Intentional neighborhood, Intentional <laughs> uh, because we wanted to, to feel a little more spacious in between where you're not in so much everyone's space constantly. You have a little more space than that, but you are still part of an intentional group uh, doing things together. So walk us through a little bit what your goals are for it. What do you want it to look like? Um, it sounds like you've got some great experience in the food growing side of things and providing food. Um, what about the rest of it as far as just the, the politics of trying to put a community together? Right. I'm actually uh, thinking very firmly about writing a book about just that. Um, there's so much, it's so easy to say, well, we'll get solar panels, we'll, we'll dig a pond, we'll have this much food, we'll feed this many people and everything. But then there's the, the politics of, and the psychology of living in this group and what are you trying to achieve? And uh, my girlfriend lived in an ashram in Canada. And at the end of the day, they said that it really was, wh what are you trying to go for at the end? It's just living isn't enough. You know, there's got to be a goal for everyone involved. And so really, that's something every community kind of needs to define as what are we here for? What are we trying to do uh, in the end? What can we pass on to people? 
And so we're still working on ours, exactly what that means, because this situation is so dynamic and we kind of have to guess what the next 20, 30 years looks like, you know, other than feeding yourself and getting the basics up, that's just not enough. And so we're working on that now. And I, I really do feel like a book would be a really good idea, just interviewing a lot of different communities and seeing what they came up with for that answer. It's interesting because there's different ways of looking at creating resilient communities, right? You can try and transform your current community into one that is more resilient and use the Mm -hmm. benefits of having an already existing group of people. And then on the other side, there is creating a completely new community, basically from scratch. Mm -hmm. You might know some of the people that will be there or or all of the people, but there's all the challenges that come from creating that that community, you know, brand new. And Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a ton of value that's going to come from your experiences, Um, not only the experiences you've had already, but the experience of actually trying to create this. And I think a book or a blog or a vlog or something, a podcast even mm-hmm. to capture what you're learning <laughs> along the way would be hugely valuable. And I know Kellen and I will want to stay in contact with you and 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 learn the lessons with you as you learn them. Yeah, it was. I'm, I'm not much of a front of the camera guy. I like to be kind of behind it. So that's it's been a bit of a struggle because I feel like even now, uh, like I said to you guys earlier, I was clearing off this land and how that's done can be done painfully or can be done smart, right? And so all these things, but I'm not in the middle of sharing all this information. So I am writing it down, taking a lot of pictures, taking a lot of videos. And um, yeah, I wish I had a front man. (laughs) I might (laughs) soon, we'll see. Yeah. Right on. Well, it sounds like you're making really good headway on this whole project. And I know that there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who have thought to themselves, what would that be like? And have kind of Mm -hmm. considered ways that they can build resilience individually and also with a small community. And I think often people start to think, ah, it's just too hard. There's too much to it. Uh, So I'd be curious. I hear that a lot. Yeah. 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 So, so what have been the biggest challenges so far and uh, in your mind, why is it all worth it? Uh, well, I think a lot of people would agree right now, the biggest challenge to buying or getting property, setting up a community is money. Uh, it it can cost, depending on what you're doing, a lot of money. Um, it can get done really quickly if you spend a lot of money or you can save a lot of money like we do. And we do everything ourselves, literally everything. We don't hire anything out. And so we live on site and we slowly every day put in a little bit of energy and a little bit of work towards this goal. And some days it feels like nothing is moving at all and everything just looks the same, even though you spent eight hours out in the woods. Um, And then a few of those days or weeks later and you realize this huge part of this project is done and it's gorgeous and you're starting to really form up. I'm going to put my little school here, my amphitheater over here, my learning center over here, you know, and all this stuff. And so we're finally at that really cool part after... uh, I'd say a year and a half of every day putting something in. And so it's it's really becoming worth it in that way of really seeing your project from the absolute nothing bare ground all the way up to this this really interesting, beautiful thing that we can bring people into and say, we know it's kind of hard. The hard part is is thinking it's hard and, and it can be, but coming on to somebody else's place and saying, here's how we did it. Here's how you can do it. Here's the tools to do it. Here's the methods. And we want it to be free. You can come here for free and stay for two, three weeks at a time and learn. 
Very cool. So, so I guess that's kind of uh, part of the question I wanted to ask is your, your overall goal for doing this. You talked earlier about how you got to do more than just live. The goal isn't just to subsist and, and be here, but you know, are you doing this to help educate? Are you doing this to um, create a place for as many people as you can? Um, or are you trying to create a kind of a closed in community where people come and, and it's a little secretive or, or what is it all? What's the purpose? <laughs> uh, well, I think we have, we don't have the total answer yet. Uh, we we want to be open to anyone, especially if there's some kind of emergency. We do live in an earthquake zone. So if there were an earthquake, all our doors would be wide open and all of our supplies would be divvied out evenly. Um, but it's uh it's a good question. And I think the answer is still coming. Um, yeah, I think that's the best answer I have for now on that. <laughs> I think we look forward to hearing more about the outcome of that in the future as it, as it kind of plays out. As you're trying to determine what that eventual outcome is and, and kind of the larger purpose, I'm curious to hear just your motivation behind it. Uh, what, what do you feel is your driving motivator you know, a lot of people would say, I'm just going to stick to my normal nine to five routine. Uh, and so I'd love <laughs> to hear you uh, explain that a little more for us. Yeah, well, it actually, it worked out really well because the realizing that we kind of had to take the reins of, of our lives and our food supply and our water and, and all these things was something that we wanted to do anyway. So this really worked out. We wanted a little homestead. We wanted a little farm. And then we started uh, before we even knew each other, uh, being in different communities and realizing that that was what we wanted. So when you're putting together what you want to do anyways, and then it, it forms this thing that really uh, helps a lot of people out, helps you out, and really brings a lot of purpose to your life to be living with the land and living with people, uh, with animals, with nature, and that whole thing. So it was really great to combine those those two things. And so we're really enjoying that. Well, what you're doing is really important. And um, <laughs> I know Kellen and I have a lot we want to learn about horticulture, permaculture uh, that we don't know. I, I Right now, mm -hmm. I, I don't even have a simple garden, right? And, and there's, I know there's so much to that. Um, so people like you doing the work that you're doing to educate is, is hugely important. Um, I wanted to switch gears really quick and go back to the topic. You had, you had mentioned that um, so your, your, your dad was seemed to be somewhat collapse aware, but he kind of maybe portrayed that to you in a vague way to not scare you. At what point did you feel like you really understood <laughs> what was going on and why and the, the consequences of that? Like, when did you become collapse aware? Sure. Uh, well, it's always kind of been there. And, and I guess I'll share what my dad said. He said, one day uh, men in suits might steal from your garden. And it was such a weird thing to say. And I only understood it when I was much older. But uh, when this really came to was when I when cryptocurrency really became a thing. I started studying charts and and all this stuff. And I was in a class, and um, the teacher was he'd send us charts, and we'd have to tell him where the projected path of this thing would go. And so, but he would take the names off of the charts. We didn't know what it was to get an idea. And uh, he's it was towards the end of this class, and he's sending us these charts. And I, they were all very bad. Uh, the news was very bad for whatever this was. And so I was charting it down and sh and showing all these things. And it ended up being our energy supplies for the United States 
um, all these uh, the food projected food paths and all this stuff. And it, it was very, very clear that if you're just going by numbers and how these things work, that uh, the projections don't look good. And it's just math uh, a lot of the times. So that was a real eye opener. And I thought, oh, that can't be right. So I redid it and I redid it and I sent it back and he said, well, that's the big story I'm trying to get through to you is you came to this conclusion, you know, and this is, this is it. Fascinating. We need more professors like that. I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was his way of saying it without having to say it. Right. Which is the most powerful. I think sometimes you can scream it in people's Mm -hmm. ears and and they're not going to figure it out. But when you help people figure it out on their own, that's powerful. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I still have the charts. Maybe I'll send them to you guys. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, we were excited when you reached out to us and it was interesting because you mentioned that you have listened to the podcast for Mm -hmm. a long time. I'm curious to hear, how did you get introduced to this podcast? And with all of your experience coming into it, what topics or episodes have felt most relevant to you? I'm a very big fan of the podcast because of the way that you guys approach things. Uh, Instead of with a lot of feelings and opinions, it's here's, I'm a very big numbers data oriented person. So it's a presentation of here's this, here's, here's why carbon capture machines need to, you know, we need to put one every so often for 70 years. It's like, okay, well, when you put it like that, it's pretty clear that that's not going to happen. I don't know how I found you guys actually. I mean, this is how many episodes are you on now? Quite a few. I think this will be 70, 78 or 79. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, who would have thought, huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't, when uh, your first episodes were really good. I like how you were talking to, uh, to Kellen and this, the skeptic and the, and it was just very original and very good. And the, I think there's a lot of trouble in talking to people because it's hard to have all this information and people expect it to be like a, a conversation over a beer, but really it's just, it can go on and on, you know, 70 some episodes worth of information just to be like, okay, yeah, that's, it's seeming more obvious, you know? And so it was really refreshing to have this other set of, of things that were, it explained it way better than I could. You know, so I was able to then give that to a lot of people who then in turn listening. And now we have great conversations about. How have you found that that people receive it when you share it? Has everyone been accepting or have you gotten some kickback? Uh, Almost all kickback, actually. Uh, It would take usually a few episodes. (laughs) I would tell people like, you're you're not going to, because it's, it's not information you want to hear. It's it's not good news. You know, nobody wants bad news. But at the same time, we need the right information. We need um, vetted, true information, you know. And so it can be hard to hear, but it's also, it's very intriguing information. So once you get past your personal wall of, I don't want to hear this, um, then you can really start to open up and be like, well, this is very interesting. I didn't know this about hydroelectric dams or topsoil. You know, uh, a lot of people were really interested with the, the sand one that we're running out of sand. You know, it's a very interesting idea and concept. Yeah, and like you said, um, it's not something you can just have a quick conversation about and have it make sense. 
you know, we, I was thinking about this the other day, 78 episodes in, we're at an average of like 40 minutes per episode. So we're we're at something like 50, what, 50, 55 hours worth of talking about this. (laughs) And we try and keep it simple. We don't go that deep into most topics. At least we haven't up to this point. And to think that we've touched on a different topic every episode and have 55 hours worth of stuff to talk about. It is, uh, it's intense how complex it can be. And to, to introduce all that to someone and say, here, here's 70, 80 plus episodes worth of stuff about why the future sucks. You should learn about it. It's no, uh, <laughs> it's no surprise that you get kickback from it for sure. Yeah. And, and this just like climate change is a hyper object. So it's, it's harder to grasp. It's harder to look at the whole thing and understand it, you know? Um, so it does help a lot to break it down into parts that then can become understandable. And so, and I think you guys were asking me my favorite episode. It was the episode when you guys started to talk about what can be done, because a lot of the times I think the most I hear is, well, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? And so that kind of spawned this school that we're building in this community is like, let me show you what you can do about it. And so there's no more excuses. You can come and it's free. You literally just come, you show up and we'll feed you and everything. And uh, hopefully that can solve some of those, uh, what am I going to do about it answers? Well, you, you should probably expect for Kellen and I to show up on your doorstep when you, when you <laughs> get it rolling. Ones, because, yeah, <laughs> no doubt, I'm, I'm totally going to be there if that's an option. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious to hear, one thing we haven't really talked about yet in this conversation is uh, your military experience. Uh, and coming from your perspective, having... Uh, served in the military. I know we on the podcast talk about how global conflict is uh, a big issue in Mm -hmm. relation to collapse. And we've talked about how even with catabolic collapse, all of the resources and funding that we put toward our military spending uh, is, is a major factor. So I'd love to hear maybe a little bit about your experience and your perspective when it comes to that side of things. Sure. Yeah, I was, um, I think I said a combat medic in the U.S. Army from 2003 to 2007. I did a tour in Iraq, mostly uh, in Baghdad and sometimes in Tikrit and uh, touring around and things like that. And so having already this slight collapse of awareness and then going into that and watching what a total political collapse looks like, that really cemented in me that I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be caught up in that, especially being unready for it. A lot of people you can tell would just had whatever they had in a bag and that's it. No one was quite ready for any of this. And so that was quite shocking and jarring. And uh, yeah, the military gave me a lot of discipline, which was really, really nice. I was kind of a punk kid. So it does that to you, straightens you out a little bit. It gave me a lot of skills and things like that, but it really taught me to not wait for a problem to to have an answer to it, to have a solution. And so I really move forward in life, just being prepared for a lot more things. And, uh, you know, we'll get into Ukraine in a moment, but they, the Russian army was sitting on the border and they said, no, they're not going to attack, not going to attack. And then once they did within an hour, every grocery store was empty. Everything was gone. You know, it's all the gas was gone. It was like, okay, we need to be a little more ready on a daily basis than that. You know, but uh, and you guys have shared information about preppers before and how, you know, the bunker mentality is not good. I totally agree. I think uh, having some preparedness, but the resiliency thing is is definitely worth that. So, yeah, I was uh, a medic 
for when two were there, came home, uh, worked in a hospital for a while, and then uh, got out and became a skydiver for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Is it adrenaline? You just like the adrenaline or... Yeah, yeah. Well, it it was it started off so innocently. And then I ended up flying on behalf of the United States as a professional and then moving to Switzerland to base jump uh, there for several years and uh, live in an organic community. So, you know, I think if someone were to force me to jump out of an airplane, that that's one of the worst tortures that could be bestowed on me. (laughs) You could not you couldn't pay me enough to do that voluntarily. Well, I'm actually terrified of heights and I still am. Uh, so it, it was just great though. I, uh, base jumping was much harder than skydiving, but, uh, yeah, very, very thrilling, very thrilling. So, and, and forgive my ignorance. You said base jumping. I went to skydiving, right? What's the, what's the difference and what does one so, do? Uh, so skydiving is, uh, almost strictly out of an airplane or helicopter. You typically have two parachutes, your main and your reserve. Base jumping, uh, base stands for building antenna span in earth. So it's when you see the guys jumping off the mountains or jumping off of a uh, uh, cell phone antenna or whatever in the wingsuits uh, and the, the flying squirrel suits and stuff like that. Yeah. Have you done the <laughs> flying squirrel suits? Yes, I was a, a wingsuit instructor uh, for in the United States and one of the one of the premier places for a long time. When you say you worked for the United States, like that was that a military thing or what no so uh i represented the united states we won a a gold and a silver medal in the nation Ah. and then we competed on a world level and wingsuit acrobatics okay so this was for this was a sport then yeah yeah just as a sport yeah i never jumped in the army i get asked a lot but uh i never did i don't know why just didn't (laughs) that's incredible yeah so you you mentioned while you were doing that you you said you lived in switzerland yeah, I would leave uh, anywhere that you could jump off things, you know, and so <laughs> it, it's really, <laughs> really expensive to go do that. So often you'd find yourself in these communities and then all of a sudden you're part of these communities and they need help and they really need somebody who's really good with plants. And so there you are, you know, so you help them kind of realign their soil, um, get things planted in a, in a better manner to produce more food for them and then get them more stable and where they get their fertilizer, how to produce their own, which is a really big deal, especially in the next couple of years and uh, how to rotationally do things and yeah, how to smooth things out pretty much. Well, it sounds like you've been in multiple places around the world that you've had (laughs) opportunities to live internationally. A lot of people don't have that experience. I'm curious if you feel like there are certain things that you saw or that you learned that would uh, apply to people in the collapse community who maybe don't have that same perspective? That it would mainly be your relationships with people. It's, it's a really big part and you can have language barriers, but you can have better relationships with people who you have a severe language barrier with just be by how you're communicating with them uh, and the nuances of people and the nuances of people from different areas. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, different climates as well in different places, anywhere from the far north to the far south, dealing with different types of soil and stuff like that. But, you know, it's kind of the same everywhere to a certain degree. So I want to jump back to um, back to the, the military experience you had mentioned. So you were talking about Ukraine and Russia, and I had that same thought. We've seen some just 
terrible footage of things that are happening and how many uh, immigrants there have been just in these first, I think we're only, you know, we're two weeks in now and they're at like two and a half million. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's left the country. That's just, that is a huge number of people. And so many of them were caught unprepared. And it's kind of interesting because there is sort of this comparison to the idea that we know what's coming. It's, it's been talked about so much and we, we might be tempted to say like, oh yeah, they kept saying that Russia is going to invade. They've been saying this for years and it's, it just doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden it Mm -hmm. does. And the entire world flips upside down. And I, and it just makes me think of people who talk about peak oil, right? People who talk about peak, any resource, um, economic issues and all these things that we're expecting, but everything right now seems great and fine. And so we don't mm-hmm. put forth the effort to actually do anything to prepare, but things can change in, in an instant. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky, who proved to be an awesome leader and is, is hanging out in Kiev and is refusing to leave, he, but in the beginning of this said, oh, don't panic. Everything's fine. Don't, you don't need to buy anything. And then meanwhile, the Russians are setting up uh, blood bank hospitals on the border, which is a, a sign they're actually going to invade. And the United States is saying, no, no, they're going to invade. But it's, yeah, it's like to anything else. How do you convince your friend that uh, there's we've, we've passed peak oil when you can go to the gas station? Now it is a very higher price right now. So maybe that's a sure. bad example. <laughs> sure. But uh you know, it's it's really hard when you go to the store and it's just chock full of food and candy and, and nice wrappers and everything to convince people that this isn't going to keep going on. It can't. It really can't. Well, you had mentioned to us that at the time of recording this, you're actually heading to Ukraine tomorrow uh, to go help yes. as a medic there. Could you tell us a little more about that and, and what prompted that, uh, what you can expect, what you've seen as you've been following the news there? Yeah, so this is this was all pretty interesting. Um, it's not too often that when something like this happens that a president will come on and say, anyone can come here and I'll arm you. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty unusual situation. And Russia, whenever I mention Russia, I do not mean the people of Russia. I mean the government of Russia when I say uh, things like this. But they are tend to be very, very brutal uh, against whoever they're attacking like very, very brutal. And so, uh, I mean, it's, it's very clear they've already committed war crimes and they're already being investigated by the Hague and collecting evidence and stuff like that. And I will be wearing a camera the whole time in case something happens in front of me. But uh, it, was, it was very jolting. And I told my partner, I, I wish I could go. I wish I could go. I wish I could go. Because generally, you really need people who are good with medical skills, who are very quick on their feet, and uh, who can get people out of there. That's more important than almost anything else because they're just bombing indiscriminately. So uh, when I was sitting on my couch and he announced that he was forming the uh, foreign, uh, the defense force, and I just thought, no way, you're kidding. And then somebody else came online from the VA, Veterans Association, saying we're not going to penalize or mess with anyone that decides to go, which is like a green light if you are. They're speaking to you. We can't send you, but if you want to go, we're not going to arrest you when you get home. You know, so that was that. I started a fundraiser, collected a lot of money. I have suitcases just chock full of medical gear uh, that I'm bringing in. It's actually going to be kind of silly to watch me get to the airport tomorrow. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I had to get uh, body armor, uh, ballistic helmets, comm systems, 
uh, all this stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, I need a contact there and then cross the border. I have a choice of where I'm going to go, but I'm going to obviously ask them where they need the most help, where uh, this morning, uh, shortly ago, there was a bombing at a maternity ward full of uh, children and nursing mothers. So, and I think that's in Mariupol, which is Southeast, which is where it's definitely the most dangerous right now, uh, because that's, it's near Crimea and uh, Odessa and all that other stuff. So I kind of expect to go down there. Um, I half expect to go to Kyiv. It's, it's really, it's really hard. And when you look online, there's so much misinformation being deliberately placed. You can tell that it's really hard to tell where you need it. You just have to a have the experience uh, to need to go in the first place. Cause a lot of people without experience are showing up and that's really noble. But uh, if you have no experience, they have to train you. And so what's happening is they're clogging up the border with uh, volunteers and volunteers that don't have a, a particular skill set. And so it's, it's I got to get there and kind of push through all of that to find out where I need to go. And I bring my military documents with me and all my, my stuff to prove who I am. Well, in a, a world where it feels like most people are, you know, we're all just watching this from afar and we're horrified by what we're seeing. It's one thing to see it happening on TV, to watch the news, to see the videos on combat footage on on Reddit and, and all these different places, and a completely other to say, I'm going to start a fundraiser, I'm going to pack my bags, I'm going to hop on a plane, and I'm going to go right in the middle of it um, to help out as many people as I can. So huge respect to you for being willing to to actually do something to, to better the world, and I wish you the best of luck in that. No, thank you. Thank you very much. This was a hard one to sit back and, and watch. Well, when it comes to that skill set that you have, your experience, one of the things that you mentioned when you had messaged us, you you said that some of your time you spend, I think you said, uh, teaching leftists and hippies how to use firearms. <laughs> Did I get <laughs> yes. that right? So yeah, for sure. I, I think I'm a really unique dude. I, I hang with the hippie crowd. I have long hair. Uh, but you know, I have several assault rifles and I teach people who have never used a firearm before how to use them. I have a gun range at my house that I built just for this purpose. Uh, I do think that there is a, a very non-toxic way of, of owning a firearm that is, is not uh, hurtful or damaging to anyone and can be used truly in a self-defense fashion. And that, um, that time is coming when people are really interested in that, but it's, it's kind of soaked in maybe a culture they're, they're a little nervous about or scared of, uh, maybe even one that they'd find disrespectful. And so we're trying to shift that around to, to show that very normal people can, can use a firearm. And it's not as terribly scary as it may seem. And that's a tough balance to strike uh, in today's culture. You know, globally, people look at America and are just taken aback by the number of firearms and everything that's involved. But with, within the country, you know, being here, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like they're everywhere, but, but knowing that it's typically a very right-wing seeming thing, like you said, it's kind of this perception, mm -hmm. but showing that, you know, it's, it's your right to bear arms. Not only is it your right, but um, it's important. It's important to, to, to know how to use them, especially when everyone else in the country does seem to have them. Yeah. It's the last if you had asked me five years ago to how's my convincing of people that they need to pick up a firearm and learn how to use it, I would have said very difficult. But now, now people pretty much just call me 
and I set up appointments uh, pretty consistently. Well, I love that during the course of this conversation, we've kind of jumped from topic to topic, uh, hearing mm-hmm. a, a handful of different things under your expertise, your experience, your perspective. And I think it kind of helps us broaden our perspective. I'm curious where we've been asking the questions from the start, where you, you're somebody who's been listening to the podcast all along. Do you have any questions for us? Oh, wow. Hot seat. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I was listening. I think you had Margaret Killjoy on recently. Yeah. And uh, I really like their podcast. It's very, very good. And they were talking about being off grid and we're off grid here. And I teach people how to purchase and install their own solar systems. And that's really cool. And I remember she said that it, there was something about maybe you guys remember this. She or they live in a A-frame that they made that's really small and it was really mm-hmm. difficult for her. And so, you know, my first thing I would tell people is the tiny houses are cool, but they're, they're temporary. <laughs> they're temporary. And, uh, you know, they're kind of like a transitory thing. Of course you can do it, but having a little more space is really important. And off grid is, is definitely not as scary or, you know, I learned everything I know off YouTube and I'm able to help everyone else. So, um, so there is a artificial star that is being built. Have you guys heard of this? I haven't. Okay. So it's one of those, one of these things when we talk about can technology save us? Um, I'm pretty much on the same page. I, I don't think it can. I think we need to change fundamentally a lot of things about us first. But they are building. Uh, there's things I, I consider um, like technology, technology X, the things we haven't thought of. And they are building this artificial star in China uh, in conjunction with a lot of other governments. And they just got it to run for 100 seconds. Uh, straight. And the goal is that it just runs continuously. It makes no pollution and it can power entire cities and they can just mm-hmm. replicate it. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's something to look into. And it sounds like uh, science fiction, but they actually have got it up and running and it runs at like a million degrees. I think it's, it's incredible. That did trigger something, a, a headline or something that I saw. I didn't look mm-hmm. much into it, but it certainly sounds it sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I guess if I, I would ask, if you think one technology that is being developed or is around could be, uh, could fix a problem, what would you think out of all the technologies that it could be? That's a good question. I think the one that, that seems to hold the most promise, its biggest fall, you know, its biggest problem is time, is fusion. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it solves a very specific problem if it works. Um, you know, nuclear fusion would would be a game changer as far as energy goes. Um, I'm still very big on the whole thought that solving our energy issues doesn't solve the myriad other issues that we have around biodiversity mm-hmm. and destroying ecosystems and all of that. That's going to continue. But as far as solving one very specific problem, though it is always talked about as being a future thing, there's there's no guarantee that that nuclear fusion isn't possible and it would be a game changer mm-hmm. for sure. That's my opinion. I don't know about right. that. Yeah, I agree with that. And I imagine if I wonder if that's kind of this artificial star that you're talking about, if they're making breakthroughs in relation to to nuclear fusion. But I do think that there are so many technologies that are going to help. Uh I'm a huge fan of all of the technologies that are being developed that are going to make things better, at least to some degree. 
I saw something today about just the cost of solar and how that's gone down so much. I've seen some things about new ways that they're trying to develop batteries that are going to be uh, much safer. Uh, they can be made with resources that aren't so limited. Uh, they can last much longer. And a lot of that is just speculative. We'll see if that actually comes to market. But I think mm -hmm. there's a number of technologies that I'm really looking forward to, assuming we can actually make them work. Yeah, one interesting roadblock is how this war with uh, between Ukraine and, and everyone, essentially. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of materials. Uh, and I do think that Russia... Now, this is my opinion that Russia did attack Ukraine because it's the breadbasket of Europe and uh, they, they wanted those resources, which would state that it's a resource war or at least uh, accompanied by that idea, you know. Sure. And so those, there's a lot of the resources they want to use in these new battery technologies and the new solar cells that come out of Ukraine and uh, out of Russia. Uh, I think it was, what was it today, silver or something or nickel, nickel. Most of it comes from Russia and we need that for solar cells and solar generation. So yes, this, see, this all just becomes more complicated. It's hard to imagine any war now or in the future not being tied to resources, right? Whether it's a byproduct exactly. or the, the actual cause of the war itself. But, you know, all of the um, sort of repercussions to the war and the, you know, the sanctions and things like that, it's all based around resources and economics. And, and so it's, it, yeah, I definitely see your point. And um, the more we fight with each other over resources, the less we're able to use those resources, especially for developing the new technologies that, that could help. And I think um, one thing to clarify is, you know, we have these episodes around why technology can't save us. And I think that gives people sometimes the impression that we are like anti-technology or that we hate technology or something <laughs> totally the opposite. I plan on putting solar on my house the moment I can do it. Um, you know, I want to get an electric vehicle in one sense. Yes. To help the environment in another sense, to help myself become more mm -hmm. um, separated from the, the grid and things like that. But yeah, I'm, I love the idea of the technologies that are coming out. Um, I just don't think that they're going to prevent collapse per se. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think when you say that people, I, I would hope they would understand what you're trying, trying to say, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, we love our solar and we love to be off grid and, and all that stuff. Uh, I did think of a question though, uh, out of all the aspects of collapse, uh, we particularly are most nervous about uh, internal immigration and external immigration uh, through conflict and resource loss and all that stuff. What do you guys feel will affect you most where you are? That's a really good question as well. Um, it's interesting because migration is one of my primary ones as well. I'm certain that migration is going to affect everyone everywhere, whether you know, you're in a community that has a large influx of immigrants or whether you become the immigrant, right? It's important that we all become, we have this ability to become mobile if we need to, because you never know what type of disaster is going to come to your area. That and water. Um, I think for me, water is a big one. Just worrying about uh, having enough water, um, having water being able to be delivered to me, to my home, uh, whether that's because of a lack of water or whether it's because of a lack of a, a 
stable grid that can deliver water to me. Those are, those are probably my two biggest. Yeah. And I would say long-term I'm most concerned just about climate change in general, because like we've talked about over and over again on the podcast, if nothing else results in our collapse, that one thing will, I think short-term I get most nervous about the state of the economy and where we're headed economically, uh, mostly because I feel like so many other parts of our society hinge on the state of our economy. And when we start seeing economic downturn, it has a lot of other implications and impacts. Uh, I think that's when people start to get desperate and, and you see a lot of the scary parts of collapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just saw yesterday they released a report that 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. That's uh, that's pretty startling information, you know. And so it's, it is hard to say, all right, guys, let's build communities. And they're like, with what money? <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I get that. And so there's there's got to be some brainstorming and ways to, you know, once we are set up, um, we can give. We can give a lot more than we do now. And we look forward to helping other people um, build their communities. And for whatever reason, and we kind of moved here for the environment, the climate, and uh, then COVID hit we didn't meet anyone for nine or 10 months and they shut down the parks and everything. We didn't even leave our property. We were like, Oh, at least we have this. And we thought, Oh, maybe we moved to a bad area. And then all of a sudden we, we met hundreds of people in one summer and they're all building communities. So this big rush to, to get off grid and to build communities. And we happened to be in like the heart of a lot of it. And so that was really, really cool. And so we're, we're helping others put together their stuff so they could build too, because we're all stronger together. Um, not as one, giant me, but many smaller ones connected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the willingness to be helpful, that's one of the biggest reasons to prepare, in my opinion. The more one is prepared themselves, the more they're able to help others, the more the, the less they're the ones needing the help when the time comes. And so um, that's one of my biggest motivations to to be prepared and to feel prepared is just that uh, fulfillment that comes from helping others from, from helping others. And it sounds like you're in a great place to do that. And it seems like just from the way you're talking, it's something that you really enjoy. And I think that is, that's going to be huge as we kind of progress down this slog of, uh, of <laughs> collapse as it happens. Yeah, no, I think it's vital. Uh, it's totally vital. Knowing your neighbors is extremely vital. I mean, I could, tell some really funny stories about that but uh, our neighbors will be sending their kids over to our place to learn um, I'm already teaching one of my neighbor's kids how to shoot a rifle properly you know and he's going to be starting hunting and other things like that I can teach him how to hunt um, getting along with your neighbors but it, in a bigger scheme of things just being all in this together uh, because this whole Mad Max fantasy stuff is is weird it's not going to work uh, it might work for one guy somewhere, but it's just, it's not a good idea. And like hoarding resources, hoarding stuff and say, I'm going to live longer than everyone. Well, for what, to, to what end, you know, I want to be with people and I want to be in a community. I want to be with my loved ones and, and uh, to share things. And so that, that is possible. No matter what anyone, any doubters say that is, you have to build it though. You have to do it. And uh, so we'll show you how to do that. Well, I've really, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think we've learned a lot and I think there's a lot to learn. Um, it's been really cool to get to know you 
again, we wish you the best of luck on your travels here tomorrow and everything that you're going to experience there. I just, yeah, I have a ton of respect for that and for you. Um, I, I do think we will want to follow up. We'll want to hear more about what happens um, with your community and what you're building there. So if you don't mind uh, here in the coming, you know, the next six or six months to a year, we'll probably be reaching back out to you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, after I get back, I will send you a message that I'm back at one piece. <laughs> yes, please do. That's appreciated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My mother would like that too. So, all right, guys. Well, I really appreciated everything. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the podcast. I've shared with a lot of people and had it's led to some just amazing conversations and a lot of people uh, kind of coming around the corner from being in a rough place to, to being able to do stuff about it. And you guys are really should be credited for that in a lot of ways. So I really appreciate you guys. Well, we love to hear that. Thank you for, for mentioning it. Um, Chase, thanks so much. We'll, we'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, guys. Take it easy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.